Good evening to everyone. It's good to see all who are able to be here for our midweek service. We're certainly thankful for everybody's presence. We'll be continuing our series of studies through the books of the Bible. Last Wednesday, we were able to cover the book of Judges. And so that brings us this Wednesday to the short yet wonderful book of Ruth. Now, I asked last time when I closed the lesson and the announcements, I believe, I asked you to remember, if you could, a little bit about the judges and try and remember the terrible nature of that time period in Israel's history, what we might call the dark ages of Israel, because it's within that time frame that we read about the book where we read the book. That's the time frame this book is set in is the time period of the judges. And yet for how bad and terrible the book of judges is, we're going to see some beautiful and wonderful things from the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. Of course, the other one would be Esther. Both of those books teach us our lessons from some wonderful characters. But the book of Ruth is, you might call it, a love story. It's not the sappy love story that makes up so much of the entertainment industry and our culture, but is a true love story and a beautiful love story. And it's also a love story not just between a man and a woman, but between God and his people and faithful people towards God. And so it's a wonderful book. We'll just be overviewing it tonight. Now, since it is a shorter book, it's only four chapters, we'll get to talk about the actual story. And we're not going to read every verse of every chapter. We're not going to go into all the details that we could. As with the other lessons, we will be doing more of an overview. But because of the short and condensed nature of the book, we'll have an opportunity to maybe cover more and actually talk about the fuller story of this book tonight. But just some of the basics that we've been covering, things like the title, why it's named that, and the author or who it is that wrote this book. Uh, first of all, the title of this book is named after Ruth, of course, who is what we might call the main character. Now, while we say that Ruth is the main character, and in many ways she is, it needs to be noted that there is another character in this story, and we'll talk about the characters in a moment, that is also really one of the main characters, and that is Naomi. Naomi is where we really begin the book, and Naomi is kind of where we end the book. And so while Ruth is sort of the central figure of the book, Naomi also plays a very important role and is one of the central features of this book also. Now, as for who wrote this book, like Judges, it is not named. There's no one who claims authorship. We're not told who the author is. Um, as far as when it was written... That it, seemed, it had to have been written after David or during David's reign. We'll talk about the genealogy that's at the end of the book when we get there. But there's a genealogy at the end of the book that talks about David. And so it seems most likely that the book of Ruth was written during the reign of David. With the genealogy that's given, if it would have been written during the time of Solomon or after, you might think that, one of, that the, Solomon would have been mentioned. But perhaps not. But at least during the reign or after David is when this book was written. It's possible that Samuel wrote the book. That's a common assumption by many people. Most scholars and commentators that I've read uh, that I recall don't believe that it was actually Samuel for one reason or another, uh, but we don't simply don't know. But we don't have to know the author of this book. As for the geography, this is kind of the zoomed-in view of uh, or of Judah, of course, this is the Dead Sea that's down at the southeast. This is Jerusalem. Uh, 
Elimelech and the individuals that we're going to be reading about, they're from Bethlehem and will end up back in Bethlehem. Of course, they're going to move down to Moab for just a little while. So Moab is just southeast of Judah. It wasn't a real far, long trip for them to take, but it is another nation uh, across the Dead Sea. And so this is the area in which these things take place. And as for the time frame, as I've already mentioned, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that this takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Now we're not given much more information than that. It says there was a famine in the land. Actually, there's uh, no famine that's specifically mentioned in the book of Judges. There's something that may be similar over in Judges chapter 6, I believe, but there's no specific famine. And so we can't go back to Judges and find the famine that is referenced. That's apparently something that's not recorded. Maybe a uh, punishment from God beyond the foreign oppressors that God used during the time period of God, or maybe just a natural famine that happened. But there was a famine, and so just sometime during the period of the judges. If we look at the genealogies, we may assume that uh, if all of the names are given there in those genealogies that we read at the end of the book, that uh, this is probably towards the early or middle part of, uh, probably in the middle part of the time frame of the judges. But again, we can't narrow that down too specifically. Now going through this book, uh, the book of Ruth plays out kind of like a play. In fact, you might think of the four chapters as four scenes. And whenever you have a play and you've got scenes, you've got your characters. And sometimes it's helpful just to remember and know who the characters are. Many of these names up here are minor characters that are only there briefly. Some are major characters. But of course there is Elimelech. We'll be introduced to him within the first few verses. This is the man who is Naomi's husband. Uh, and there's, by the way, there's the names and what these names mean uh, there in those, uh, per, in the parentheses. But Elimelech is Naomi's husband. He's the one who moves his family off to Moab. Of course, there is Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law and a very central figure. And we'll have a little bit to say about her. Now, Naomi and Elimelech had two sons. There was Malan and Kilian. And uh, these men, while they were there in Moab, took for themselves Moabite wives. One married Ruth, and one married a woman named Orpah. And then there is, of course, Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer. He is a kinsman or a close relative of Elimelech. So these are the main characters. Of course, some, like I said, will only be in the uh, play. They will only be in the story briefly. Others play very major roles. And like I said, it kind of goes out like a play. You might think of each of the chapters like a scene. And when we talk about chapter 1, this covers the departure of uh, Elimelech and his family and the conditions that bring the return of Naomi and Ruth. Chapter 2, the primary focus is Ruth uh, reaping in the field. Chapter 3 is the scene of Ruth's request for marriage from Boaz. And then chapter 4, we might entitle that chapter, Redemption, as Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, works to fulfill Ruth's requests to redeem her, to redeem Naomi, and to redeem their hope. And so that's a very simple outline. You could probably come up with some titles of your own if you wanted to outline the book. So chapter 1, as we get into the book, we've already read verse 1. We read that there was a um, during the time period of the Judges, there was a man named Elimelech. He was um, uh, he and his wife Naomi and their two sons decided to move to the country of Moab. 
Now, we're not told why they did this other than the fact that it's during the days of the famine. Some commentators have some pretty interesting theories or may have a lot of speculation. But for one reason or another, Elimelech decides that it's best for he and his family to leave Bethlehem and to leave Judah and to go to Moab. Now, this doesn't seem like a great idea. He's really not supposed to do this. The Israelites have conquered the promised land. They've been given allotments of land. And the allotments, the inheritances that they are given, they are theirs. They are given them by God. They're not even supposed to sell these properties, as we learn in the law and other stories of the Old Testament. And so to leave the land, to leave the inheritance, seems to be a very poor choice indeed, especially to go and live uh, with the Moabites, with a foreign nation, a pagan nation, a nation where God is not worshipped, a nation that does not know God as they ought to. So this seems to be a very foolish decision. But on the other hand, we don't know all of the circumstances. We don't know how impoverished they may have been. We do know that in the time period of the judges, it seems that Israel didn't know God as they ought to much of the time, if you remember how bad things got during the period of the judges. So maybe Elimelech had some good reasons to leave, or maybe he didn't. Maybe it was faithlessness on his part or worldliness on his part. The simple fact of the matter is we don't know. But he goes down to this foreign land, and then his sons do something that they probably shouldn't have done, and that is they married foreign women. Now, the Old Testament, the law of Moses made clear they were not, the sons of Israel were not supposed to take wives from the other nations. They weren't supposed to give their daughters in marriage to the sons of other nations. And yet, that's exactly what these men do. I don't know if that was a disappointment to Elimelech and Naomi. I can't imagine that it would have been since they were the ones that decided to move them there and live there. I don't know what else they expected their sons to do, but they take women as wives that are Moabite women. And while they're there, the tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. We're not told why, we're not told how, just simply he dies. Not only that, that's tragic enough, but then both of his sons die. Malan and Killian both die. Now some might assume that perhaps these men were evil, perhaps this was some judgment of God. It certainly seems strange that all three of the men in this family die. At least two of them must have been fairly young when they died. But again, we can't assume too much. We're simply not given the information. But what we have here now is we have three widows, one of whom is an Israelite in a foreign land, and her two daughters-in-law, who are Moabite women, but all of them have lost their husbands. You can imagine how devastating and how dire this situation truly must have been. And so Naomi makes the decision that the best thing for her would be to go back to the land of Israel. She had heard somehow that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food and the famine was over. And so it seemed like a good time to go back in that regard. And also she had no hope in the land of Moab. Who of these foreigners was really going to take care of an Israelite foreigner? Surely her situation was dire. And so she began to leave, and her two daughters-in-law decide to go with her. But she doesn't think this is the best idea. She thinks that they should stay in the land. She doesn't have any other sons for them to marry. There's no way that she could have a son and raise them and uh, for these women to marry. And I think she probably knows that 
Israel is maybe not the best place, or she thinks that Israel is not the best place for a couple of Moabite widows. Who knows what would happen to these women? How would they be treated? How would they be looked at in the land of Israel? Now, while I think Naomi is acting out of pity, she's thinking that these women are young women. They have much of their life ahead of them. They could return home to their parents. They could be with their families. They could find other men that could marry them and raise families and have a good, normal life. And I think that is honorable, and I think that is kind of Naomi. But I also think Naomi doesn't have necessarily at this moment the right priorities. Because that may all sound well and good to leave these people in their natural environment and let um, uh, these women stay where they're familiar with. These are not God's people. This is not the best place for them. But Orpah, as sad as she is and as much as she weeps, agrees with Naomi's advice and she decides to go back to her home. Let's read a few verses. In verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Many wonderful sermons, I'm sure, have been taught about these verses. These are some of the most beautiful verses that you can imagine. Ruth's devotion to Naomi is a picture of true love, of what it means to be devout and caring. And loyal to somebody. Now, one of the things that's interesting is to try and think about why Ruth was this loyal. Now, this is not your typical in-law relationship. There's all sorts of jokes that we won't tell right now about in-laws and the relationships between in-laws. But we know that many times those relationships can be strained or are not what they ought to be. Most times, and especially I hope in the church, people are able to at least get along with one another. But how often do you see relationships between in-laws that are as loving and as caring, as devoted as the relationship between Ruth and Naomi? Now, again, without speculating too much, that tells me something about Naomi and something about their family and also something about Ruth. And by the way, the other sister-in-law loved Naomi as well. She didn't want to leave Naomi, and it took Naomi's prodding to send her away. And this speaks volumes about this woman. We know so very little about Malan and Kilian and Elimelech and what influence they had on these women. But apparently Naomi had a tremendous impact on them, and especially upon Ruth. Ruth was ready to leave her family, because in Ruth's mind, Naomi was her family. Ruth was willing to leave her people because in her mind, Naomi's people were her people. Ruth was willing to leave behind the gods of her people that she had grown up worshiping because to her, Naomi's God was her God. And I don't want to over-allegorize things, but in some ways, Ruth paints a beautiful picture of conversion. 
you know, that really is what conversion is in many aspects. It's leaving the sometimes even the blood families of this world for the family that is in Christ. It's living, leaving the people and the ways of life that are so natural to us to live in accordance with the ways of the Lord. It's leaving the God of self and the false gods of mankind to worship and to serve the one true God of all. That's exactly what all of us should be seeking to do. And the truth is also that many times it is another person that is who helps us do that. It is a person who shows us the Lord through their actions, through their words, through their service. That helps us bring to us an understanding that is right about who the people of God are, about who God is. And I think that we can assume that that's what Naomi had done over the years, however many or few she had had with Ruth. She had been a wonderful example, and perhaps a great teacher, that had influenced Ruth to be able to make this most important decision of her life. And what a wonderful decision it was. Naomi may have thought that it was foolish at the time, but it was the wisest decision that Ruth could have made to leave her people to go be with the Lord's people. And so Naomi and Ruth return, and we find that Naomi must have been a well-known woman. She must have been a loved woman because when she arrives back into Bethlehem, there's kind of a stir and a commotion, and the people are excited that she has returned, it seems. But, of course, Naomi is in very poor spirits. In verse 20, she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi, now we may be a little critical. We may think it sounds like Naomi is throwing a bit of a pity party, but at the same time, she is in a great deal of distress. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's returned to a place that she hasn't been in many years, and she has nothing. She has no hope, really. How her and Ruth are going to survive at this point is still a bit of a mystery. But they've come back, and chapter 2 begins to tell us how the rest of the story will unfold. Now it says, verse two, chapter 2 opens in kind of an interesting way. It says, it's kind of this little side note. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so that's kind of one of those foreshadowing events, one of those teasers that you think there's something significant about the fact that we're introduced to this man, even though it's kind of a side part from the story, because verse 2 then picks up and says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And so there we see why Boaz was mentioned in verse 1. When Boaz, or when Naomi and Ruth get to Israel, at the end of chapter 1, it said it was the very beginning of barley harvest. And so the famine is over. There's a good harvest that's come about. And they arrive just in time for the harvest to begin. Now, one of the laws of the law of Moses was that when people went out to glean their fields and to reap the harvest, the law said that they were not supposed to reap all the corners of the field. And when they 
dropped things as they were reaping. Naturally, some grain, some barley would fall to the ground, and they weren't supposed to try and pick all that up. They were to leave that because they were to allow the poor and the impoverished to come and to glean the fields behind them. That was part of the way that those who were in need were able to be fed. Now, without getting off into a political discussion or way off base, I think there is something important and interesting here, and we're not trying to solve our country's problems, but to help Christians have the right perspective, first of all, God cares for the poor. And God wants those who have the ability to help the poor to help the poor. When people turn their backs on the needs of those who are in poverty and come up with whatever excuse or reason, be that reason right or not, and refuse to help those who are in need, that is not Christian conduct. It is not the conduct of a child of God. God has always wanted His people to care for those who are in need. But it is also interesting that in the law, as God gave commands that there be provision, that even those who were impoverished but had the physical ability to go and do something to help earn and work for their livelihood, they were supposed to do that. Now, there were many gifts and ways that people could give to the poor, but the law did not require the farmer to go and to glean his own fields and to then take that remnant and go and give it to somebody. The person who was in need was expected to go and do some work. In fact, do some very serious work. And when we read about Ruth, what we find is not someone that's looking for a handout, but someone that is working very hard. In fact, her work ethic in the field was noticed by Boaz's servants, if you read through chapter 2, and they were impressed with this woman. She wasn't lazy. She wasn't just looking for something free. But she was in a very destitute situation. But she was willing to work in order to make uh, ends meet. You know, as Christians, that should be our attitude also. Maybe we find ourselves at one point in life or another in need, impoverished. And while we should be thankful for the help that others may give, and we shouldn't be too proud to accept help, we should also always be willing to do whatever we can to be able to help feed ourselves. There's New Testament passages that speak about that. So not to get off on a big side trail, but there's an important lesson there in Ruth and Naomi's situation and how they went about bettering that situation. It teaches us both care for the poor, but also the importance of work ethic. But also, we see one of the greatest happenstances, so to speak, that we can read about in scriptures. I love that line in verse 3 that says, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. You know, this is one of those stories that includes some chance and some coincidence. Now, surely God's unseen hand may be behind the scenes, but she just so happens to choose a field that belongs to a man who is a relative of Naomi's. And that's going to, the why that's important will come out in just a bit. But this man is a good man. He's a worthy man. And that's important also. In fact, later on, Naomi would warn Ruth at the end of chapter 2 to stay in Boaz's field with Boaz's women because if she were to go to another field, she may very well be assaulted. Now, that doesn't sound like behavior that's becoming of God's people, but remember some of the stories that we read and talked about from the book of Judges. 
It's not always the best of places. Many of these people are not acting like God's people. And this could be a very dangerous place for a Moabite woman. But she finds the field that belongs to an honorable and a virtuous man. And then in verses 8 through 16, we're introduced to Boaz. He comes and he visits his field that he owns. And he talks with some of his servants. And he notices this woman. And he asks some of his servants about her. And they let him know that, well, this is Ruth. This is that girl that came back with Naomi. By this point, everybody had probably heard the story of Naomi, how she was back. And uh, while she had been gone, her husband died and her sons died. But there was also this Moabite woman that came with her who was the widow of one of her sons. But she loved Naomi and she'd come. Well, this is her. She's out here working in the fields and she's only taken a, a short break, they say. And she's been laboring through the day to take care of herself and of her mother-in-law. And so he speaks to Ruth, and he speaks very kindly. And verse 11 and 12, he says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Now all of that's very impressive. But listen to Boaz's words in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I hadn't noticed that verse before until I was rereading this. But I think that's a very important verse and a powerful verse. And I think it teaches us something of Ruth's decision. I do think that Ruth loved Naomi and was loyal to Naomi. But I believe this verse reminds us that she had been converted to the God of Israel. When Boaz talks to her, he says, May the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, bless you. I think, and maybe this is speculation on my part, but I think Ruth was convinced that the God of Israel was the one true God. I believe that's part of why she thought that she should go with Naomi to Israel. She knew that even if that was a foreign people, it was the people of God. And if there was anyone who could help her and take care of her, it was God. And I think Boaz sees this, and this is part of what he's commending. He is commending her love and her loyalty to Naomi, but he is commending her willingness to turn her back on all of her upbringing in order to seek refuge in the wings of the Lord. And what a great hope he gives to her, even though it may not seem like much more than just words at this point, when he hopes for her to be blessed and to find the refuge that she seeks under the Lord and the God of Israel. And so she continues and finishes out the day. And at the end of chapter 2, she goes home. And of course, Naomi's curious. She wants to know what all's happened. And she tells her about the day. And she mentions that it's the field of a man named Boaz. And all of a sudden, Naomi sees that her fortunes may be turning around. And not just by luck. But I think maybe she feels a bit rebuked perhaps. But it's a joyful rebuke as she remembers maybe when she came back to town and was crying about how she should be called Mara because the Lord had afflicted her and brought calamity upon her. Listen to what she says in verse 20. She says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Notice, this is the same woman that had been talking about being a calamity of being destroyed and afflicted by the Lord. 
And now she's remembering and she's saying that the Lord does not forsaken kindness. She sees the kindness of God potentially at work here. She sees hope. Now why does she see hope? She sees hope because Boaz is a close relative. That means that he has the opportunity and the ability, in fact, you might even argue the legal responsibility of redeeming, and we'll talk about what that means here in a moment, Naomi and Ruth. Basically, there is hope that Naomi and Ruth will not have to live in poverty and in destitution the rest of their lives, but they may be able to become, uh, through Boaz, redeemed and be able to continue the family lineage. And so chapter 3 shows us how this plan goes about. Now chapter 3 is kind of a strange chapter. It seems very different. There's some things here I think that are probably customs that have been lost to time. Some people have speculated about what's taken place here. I will say at the beginning I don't believe anything illicit or improper takes place here. But Naomi instructs Ruth to do something. When it comes towards the end of the harvest season and They've harvested the barley and they're now threshing all the barley. There's a night that she knows, Naomi knows that Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor. In fact, he's going to be staying the night there. He'll be there all night. And so she tells Ruth to wash and to anoint herself and to clothe herself and to go and wait until he's eaten and drunk and he's gone to bed and lay, he's going to lay down in the field. And Ruth is supposed to watch and wait for all this to happen. And after Boaz has gone to bed, after he's gone to sleep, she's supposed to go and uncover his feet and then lay down at his feet. Now again, there's probably some customs or some cultural things there that aren't explained and that have been lost to history, but Ruth does just that. And when Boaz awakes, he's, it's the middle of the night, and something startles him, and he realizes there is a person laying down at his feet. Now, there have been some that have assumed this was something improper, and you can imagine why, after all, it is the middle of the night. This young woman is coming to a man in the darkness of night. They are alone. That's not always the best of situations. That's not the most proper of situations. But I believe the Bible points out this is something that is very pure. In fact, it is something that is quite remarkable, because what is clear is what Ruth is doing is she's not trying to seduce or to trick Boaz, but Ruth is actually, in a sense, proposing to Boaz. She is asking Boaz to fulfill the responsibility of kinsman redeemer, which would require him to marry, and asking him to marry her in order to save her, but also Naomi. Now, it is possible, in fact, from what Boaz says, it seems very likely that Boaz is an older man, maybe much, maybe significantly older than Ruth. We don't know how much older than Ruth, but he's kind of surprised and he's honored that she hasn't gone and tried to find one of these younger men to go and entice and uh, get to marry her. But she's come to him as the kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth's decision here, I'm sure that she respects Boaz. He has treated her very well. Um, but her decision is a selfless decision. It's a selfless and a humble act. Now that may not fit into Hollywood's picture of romance, but it's a beautiful picture of Ruth's devotion to the ways of the Lord and His law, to her mother-in-law, and to making sure that things are done the right way. 
And Boaz is a wonderful example of purity and integrity. He tells Ruth to lay back down and to remain there. And so it seems nothing untoward or immoral happens. He also wants to make sure that nothing could even be rumored to happen. He advises her to get up before it gets fully light and to be able to leave before anyone may recognize her. That's not because they're sneaking around, but I think he realizes that this situation could be misconstrued, and he wants to protect Ruth and her uh, her reputation and his reputation. And also, he is a man of integrity. He is honored by this request of Ruth. But he also knows that there is someone who's actually a closer kinsman to Elimelech than himself who would have the first right to uh, become the kinsman redeemer. And although it would mean, while Boaz may want to marry Ruth, and while he may see the value of inheriting, in a sense, Elimelech's land and property, and that could help him out, he's not going to sidestep the law. He's going to approach this other person. That's what chapter 4 will be about. But also another thing we see about Ruth in verse 11 of chapter 3 says, And he says to her, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy, some translations say virtuous, woman. That again speaks so much about Ruth. We know how people are. We know how the Israelites were from what we read and how they often looked at foreign people. It was not an easy thing for Ruth to come to this culture. And yet Ruth's character shone through. And she had impressed the people. In fact, all of Bethlehem, all the townsmen, Boaz says, recognize that Ruth is a worthy and a virtuous woman. What an example for us about the power of living a good example. And then chapter 4 Boaz uh, goes about his business that day with utmost haste. He finds the nearer kinsman redeemer. And basically there's three laws. So all this I've talked about the kinsman redeemer and why this is important. There's three laws of the Old Testament that are at play. First of all, it was by law Israelite land had to stay within a family. They could not sell their land to another family. Now, in dire circumstances, they may be able to lease the land for a time. Or when someone died... The land was to be redeemed by the closest relative so that the land stayed within the clan and the family. So that was Israelite can't be sold. It can only be leased. The second law was that if, it, if a person died and had no heirs, then it must be redeemed by a close relative. And the third law at play is a law known as leveret marriage. If a man died and had no children, his brother was supposed to take the, his widow as wife and the first son that they had together would actually be considered the son of the dead husband. And so that man's line would be continued. Now, that's why the near kinsman ends up not wanting to take this deal. Uh, Boaz comes to this near kinsman in front of the other council of elders, so to speak. He explains the situation uh, that Naomi has come back and that Elimelech has passed away. And so someone in the family needs to redeem the land. And at first, this man kind of thinks, well, there's an opportunity here to get more land. I can have a Limelech's land. And he says, yeah, sure, I'll be the kinsman redeemer. But then uh, Boaz says, now there's something else. On the day that you take possession, you also need to marry Ruth because her husband died and she had no children. And so you need to perform that responsibility as well. 
Well, this man realizes that that means any children or the children he has with Ruth, at least the firstborn, would end up getting this inheritance that would increase his own wealth. And he decides he doesn't really want to deal with that or mess with that and mess with his children's inheritance. And so he says, no, I just pass on the deal. And so Boaz steps in without any of those carnal concerns, and he marries Ruth. And then, it, of course, he marries Ruth. Let's go ahead and read verses 13 through 17 as the book draws to a close. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, now notice this is the story comes back to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. What a beautiful story of the turn of fortunes for Naomi. This woman who had lost so much but is so blessed. And I think one of the great verses there is... These women, and this again speaks to Ruth and her character. You know from reading the Bible how important it was to have a child, to have a son, and to have this grandson was so important. And yet even as they're praising Ruth's or Naomi's turn of events, they remind her, as great as this boy is, don't ever forget that Ruth, your daughter-in-law, is more to you than seven sons. What an incredible compliment to this woman Ruth. But then let's read verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of David. Now you probably know that. You've read this book. But I want you to try and imagine being an Israelite. During the reign of David or shortly thereafter. And all of a sudden there's this new book that's been written by one of the prophets and you get to read this book or you get to hear someone read it and as you listen to this story of this Moabite woman you think well that's an interesting story this is a beautiful story I'm glad to hear this happy ending as we go through all of this that we've talked about so far but then all of a sudden you're reading or you're listening and they talk about who this person is who this boy born to this unknown woman was this Moabite Ruth and they say and that was Obed who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David. Imagine the shock of hearing that story. The shock of hearing the turn of events in a woman's life. The shock of hearing about this Moabite woman who became the grandmother of the king of Israel. And it's just a lesson and a reminder of the ways that God works. Now, there's a couple of lessons, and I'll go through these quickly as we're at the end of our time. But first of all, the story of Ruth is an incredible reminder about the importance and the ability to be faithful during faithless times. Remember, this is during the time period of the Judges. Just go back and read Judges 17 through 21 if you don't remember what those times were like. And you'll be reminded it was a dark period in Israel's history. There was idolatry. There was immorality that was unfathomable. And you may look at that and think, what good could come from that, that time period? A great deal of good. And it's a reminder to us as individuals that it does not matter 
how bad times are. I know we look at our country and our culture and our world, and we think everything's going crazy. People are getting worse. People are getting more wicked. People are losing religion. People don't like, don't want to hear anything of, of the Bible or the truth. And that may all be true. It does not change our responsibility to be a light and to follow the Lord. There have always been people, even in the darkest of times, that have chosen to follow the Lord. And you and I can make that choice too. You and I can be like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and choose the way of faithfulness, even if all around us are faithless. But also there's a beautiful picture of redemption. This is from a, a work that I've read, and I think it's kind of interesting. I'll, again, not to over-allegorize the story, but these characters in the scene seem to be a picture of the way that God has worked. Naomi reminds us of Israel who was dispersed and went away, but ultimately returned. The daughter-in-law Orpah seems to be, it reminds us of that portion of Israel that stayed with the world. She had the opportunity to come back like Ruth did, but instead she stayed in Moab. Ruth portrays that remnant that would ultimately be redeemed. Boaz, it seems to be a beautiful type of Christ as the kinsman redeemer. He who redeems us from our sins as the Lord of the harvest, the giver of bread, the giver of us. Boaz fulfills all these things in this story. And of course, Jesus is all of those things. And perhaps the near kinsman who did not do his role was not able to redeem Naomi and Ruth could picture the law, which was not sufficient, especially to the Gentiles. So a beautiful picture of redemption. But also, I think in this story is a reminder of God's faithfulness. We talk about the faithfulness of Ruth and of Boaz, and that's true. But God's hand is there. God is behind the scenes in this story. In fact, in some of the most obscure ways, but when you think about that lineage, and again to the Israelite who was originally reading that, and how amazing it must have been, you and I get to think about the fuller genealogy because it doesn't end with David. But that keeps going and going. So that Ruth is actually not just the grandmother, great-grandmother of David, but a great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Now you think about that. This woman is an integral part that leads to the birth of, of the promised Messiah. Now, if you want something to sit up and think about for a while tonight, think about the idea that God's plan hinged on this woman finding the right field by happenstance. She just so happened to go into Boaz's field and thus meet Boaz and then ultimately marry Boaz. This story comes from the fact that a man at one point seemed to have neglected his duty and took his family away from God's promised people. And yet God was able to bring them back and still work out his plan. We don't always know the ways that God is working. We don't always know the way that his will is going to come about. But what the Bible shows us again and again and again is that God's will is going to be accomplished. And that those who are faithful to the Lord can trust in His promises and can trust in His will, whatever the world around us seems to be doing and however bad the situation seems to be. God is faithful. So let us return that faithfulness in our own life. That's a wonderful lesson from the story 
of Ruth. Well, we'll end the study there this evening. I want to take the opportunity, as we normally do at the end of a sermon, to extend the invitation. If there's someone here who desires to obey the gospel, then we invite you to make that choice to do so tonight. Or if there's a Christian who desires the prayers of the church on your behalf, if you'll come and let us know how we can pray with you and for you, we'd be happy to do that. So if there be one in need, we'd invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.